Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. I hope you can hear me. I'm very, very happy to see uh, all of you, students, colleagues, people interested, people here in person, also a warm welcome to everybody uh, online, whether it's live or um, when you're watching later on. My name is Olivia Ritazibwa. I am um, one of the people that um, is teaching on the, here at LLC at the Human Rights and Politics uh, Master's Program. Um, and together with a team of people that also are teaching the Master's of Human Rights, um, we kind of forms also together with some other colleagues, um, the LSE Human Rights team. So my first thank would go to my colleagues there, the trust that they put in putting together this um, evening uh, tonight. And the reason why we're coming together is um, because December 10th is the International uh, Day of, um, International uh, Human Rights Day. The commemoration of that is actually trying to think of the year of 1948, when the General Assembly accepted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so that's a quite important document in and of itself that a lot of our students as well uh, take often as a starting point to think about what they want to intervene or think about when it comes to human rights. If I'm very honest, for me, uh, often when I think of the UN or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I'm like, it's been used in such a bad way, in such an imperial or colonial way. So I'm extremely excited, actually, to have people that will um, maybe offer us a different way to engage with that document in a way that doesn't constrict it to just how it's been used. So that's, in a very uh, tiny nutshell, what will um, happen uh, today. The uh, International Human Rights Day uh, lecture is something that we do on a yearly basis. So last year we had the amazing Nora Erakat, who spoke to us about uh, present-day apartheid and the importance of Palestinian uh, political thought, and also in conjunction with other uh, systems of thought like black thought, and how that helps us think about how we make human rights, especially all these things, again, that we write down, more or less meaningful. In, in, in everyday practice. I will get to introduce uh, in more detail my two guests, uh, and I'm very excited, you'll hear, I'm very excited about having them and sharing them with, uh, with you tonight. But before that, maybe uh, a very few housekeeping um, rules. So we, the, the format of tonight will be, I always promise not to talk that long, I'm gonna try to talk <laughs> less than 10 minutes, which I will be able to do. Uh, and then we'll invite uh, Professor Grovogi to give his um, lecture uh, for about 40 minutes. And then we will be joined by uh, Professor Malik to uh, give comments for around 10 minutes. And then is an invitation to you to uh, think of questions, comments you might have, both people in the room, but also uh, people online. And that will be moderated, so I'll try to um, uh, moderate the people in the room. I have colleagues that help me to moderate people um, uh, online. People physically in the room here, make sure that you wait until there is a microphone for you so that people online can hear what you have to say um, and vice versa. That's the one thing to keep in mind. If you want to tweet about this, which no pressure, we invite you to do. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, um, I think the hashtag might be on there or it isn't. Yes, hashtag LSE Human Rights, you know, anything you want, pictures or whatever. But also know that this is being recorded and live streamed, so 
um, in case afterwards we will also put it on the on the YouTube um, uh, side of uh, of the LSE. If you ha have strong feelings about when you ask a question not featuring on that, please feel free to reach out to us and we'll make sure that um, it's not there. So it's important uh, for you to know that. So we end around eight o'clock. I'm not a I'm not really good with time, but I'll try tonight. <laughs> I'll try tonight. Uh, and afterwards, you're obviously warmly invited to um, the receptions that we will have. That was also co-organized with our colleagues from the Africa Institute here. Um, the visit of both professors uh, Malik and Gravugi here is also co-organized with our colleagues from uh, the LSEIR department. So in, in a nutshell, I'm very grateful for everyone pulling together and the colleagues that you know put the trust in here, but also just the collaboration of thinking beyond disciplines even when we're trying to engage some of the questions that we, you uh, will hear tonight. So don't run away immediately. There is free drinks. Uh, I think, I don't know, I, I've learned in this country that that's an incentive, but you're already here, so I don't need to use it in that way. Um, I think in terms of housekeeping, uh, that's all I uh, want to share. I think I promised a, a proper introduction of, of my guests here tonight, and it will be a proper one, but it might not be a classic one, in the sense that um, I guess I've come to understand there's a lot of things that we can know about each other that you can just <coughs> Google or Wikipedia. And, and I think that also goes for you know a lot of what we study. Back in the days, I think, when all three of us started studying, there was no such thing as Google and Wikipedia. <laughs> so we, there was something about facts that were more prominent or more important than uh, it used to be. So I do invite you to really Google both of these scholars that uh, we invited here tonight in terms of what they've published, in terms of what they stand for, the different accolades they have. But I, I think what I've chosen to share with you tonight is maybe a more personal account of why I'm excited that here uh, next to me but also why I think um, when it comes to the, the central topic of tonight in terms of how do we meaningfully celebrate something like International Human Rights Day, um, what, what could that look like, right? So I'll, I'll try to share uh, that with you. Um, and I guess my, my very specific advice is both use Google, Google Scholar, but maybe also, yeah, maybe Wikipedia, but also Google Scholar, so that you actually get a sense of also all the many different things that they have um, published and they will inspire you. I think in many uh, of the, your own research, your own paper writing um, and, and, uh, and similar things. So what I will try to share is um, on the one hand, I guess the first time I met them and I had to revisit my own memory of that because it's not very clear. And often when people are meaningful, you forget the first time you met them, but I'll try to share something about that. And then also something related to um, how meaningful this scholarship has been on the one hand, but also, and I think for me personally, that's equally important, how meaningfully uh, they have um, embodied what it means to be a meaningful scholar, which are, might be two different things, right? So we can celebrate what everybody publishes, you know, more or less quickly, but uh, what's the ethos behind someone engaging in the world as a scholar uh, in, in a way that's meaningful, especially when it comes also uh, to human rights, uh, how we understand them today. So, on my immediate right, I have uh, Professor Siva Gravogi, who will deliver uh, tonight's um, keynote speech, in a way. And um, I was extremely excited, I think, I mean, the invitation I, I gave in general, I said it's an International Human Rights Day uh, lecture, but the fact that he invites us to revisit the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as I said, 
It's one of the most classic documents um, that represents, I think, what human rights could stand for, but it also represents in many occasions what uh, a westernized interpretation of human rights uh, could look like, but also how in practice is often used uh, in more or less good ways to uh, perpetuate control of the global north to the global south, um, or maybe something else as well, right? So we, if we study it, we see that in history as well, people have contested many of these things. So the reason why I'm excited is that I know Professor Grovogi, as um, I mentioned Wikipedia and Google, whatever, I'm not going to come back to it, but you know, when we think of places of knowledge and you multiply it by infinity, there's a lot of forensic knowledge that comes from uh, his scholarship that it's, it's difficult even to um, really put into words. But what is more important than just knowing a lot about stuff that happened, stuff that didn't happen, is that you have a clarity of purpose of why it's important to know things, right? And I'll, and I'll come back why, why that's important. So um, when I saw that he was going to engage the, this, this most universally known document of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I was, I was quite um, uh, excited about that. And I was very much comforted also that um, my scholar friend, um, uh, Professor uh, Malik from uh, the Paul University, uh, agreed to join us in a discussion of this as a very close uh, reader, a scholar that is a close reader of Professor Grovodiki's work to think about uh, how we can make sense of some of the invitations that we will receive tonight in terms of thinking about these things, uh, but also as a scholar who um, has taught me how to try and bridge creative impulses we might have in terms of how do we make sense of the world, in terms of curating knowledges, archives, and how we address them, um, alongside the need for forensic knowledge about the details of what happened, but also how do we valorize um, black engagements with knowing and experiencing the world and how that gives us new um, uh, insights. So in terms of anecdotes, the way to, to make this more concrete, if I, if I have to recall them, like I said, the, if I remember when I met them first, and it might not be the accurate account of it, so it's my memory, um, <laughs> the first time. Um, and the reason why I will share the, these anecdotes is that at the end of the day, for both of them, in my ideal world, if I, hadn't, if I didn't have to be formal, I would introduce them as both my, my, my kin, as in brother and sister, but also as elders. And it doesn't happen very often, especially in academia, I think, where you, can, um, where you are able to introduce people as both those that stand next to you and help you with everything you need to do um, by um, defying hierarchies and the hierarchies that we've learned to have in the academy but at the same time um, being generous enough to appear to us as elders and people that can actually help us think through what we can do, what we decide to do or not to do. Um, so if I have to make this concrete, <laughs> um, when it comes to Professor uh, Grovogi, I think, I don't even know the year, but we met each other for the first time uh, in a random place like Kassel in Germany. <laughs> and, it was, um, and I remember listening to his, his keynotes it was, uh, it was not random, but it was about, um, and you might have to come back to it, who he was exactly. It's really a shame on me that I don't remember exactly, but I learned about um, a person of African descent long, long time ago being there as a scholar in a random, tiny German place. So I, I received a lot of empirical knowledge of stuff I didn't even imagine, right? 
but most importantly also received the knowledge of why that detail um, was important. So afterwards we went for, um, we walked for dinner um, uh, somewhere again. My, my memory is not that good actually, but I remember we having a conversation about uh, random politics at that time um, of random descent. And I guess why I would connect this anecdote to both um, uh, Professor Grover giving both my elder and brother is that I, I answered that question quite lazily. So the question was like, well, how can we make sense of, of random politics today of, or um, of um, President Kagame? And I'm like, oh, I think here in Europe, you know, people ask the wrong questions about Kagame. We don't have good questions about, you know, African politics. It's always binaries. And I think it's what, what the reason why I remember that moment is I didn't feel dismissed even though I was being lazy. But also um, to have a, a moment in which you know that um, a scholar next to you has a genuine interest in, in what you might have to say or not. And the reason why I share this is you know, not just to put accolades, I think we can do that, but as, as, as a practice or an ethos of being a scholar, I think it's quite important when we connect that also to, to um, issues uh, of human rights. And the next anecdote I would share in that context is, is the one that brings also the generosity, I think, is. Um, um, I think all of us, all three of us, met various times at the International Studies Association conventions. Variably, they're somewhere in North America, so it will be in the U.S. and uh, in Canada. Uh, and, and then I also make a point to visit some friends I might have in Ithaca, Professor Grovuki being uh, at Cornell University. Uh, so I would go and visit him in his office and say, hi, I'm here, but I'm on holiday. <laughs> he was like, okay. When do you have time? Um, uh, he's like, I would, I would like to hear about your projects. So he brought me in on a Saturday morning and we talked about my projects for three hours in his free time as well. And, and I, again, I'm sharing this in the sense that um, there is, there is a, an ethos of generosity that some of our elders have that I think is really important uh, to share. And again, I would connect that to a lot of the contents that we might uh, hear tonight and also it has given me obviously a lot of inspiration in trying uh, to think uh, through this. Similarly for um, Professor Malik, we met at the similar uh, one of the ISA conferences, me being super excited. There was a panel where the name of Thomas Sankara was mentioned and students here in the room, they know uh, how slightly obsessed I am uh, with that figure. And it was one of the first time I've been going to ISA since 2007, it was 2017. I was being pretty intense, I think, and say like, oh my God, I was <laughs> so excited. But ever since, I think also the book project that was being promoted um, or, or discussed at that time, uh, African Anti-Colonial uh, Archives, has really given a lot of ideas of thinking of, um, we can make an inventory of how both Africanist studies, IR studies, human rights studies are really lacking when it comes to actually trying to make sense of how we can make more people survive in this world. Um, and I guess for, for both of them, what is deeply inspiring is a, a conscious refusal of that state of affairs, a forensic approach to how we can study this, and then from there how we can think of how we can um, move uh, beyond this. So <laughs> you see how I said I was not going to talk very long. Um, I, I won't. I'll try to. Um, finish here by flagging up, um, I think, three short quotes that I have specifically from interventions that I've heard from uh, Professor Grovogi in the recent past um, that have inspired me and I think might be also a, a guidance 
in, in listening uh, to what we will hear next. So he will give his, uh, his intervention and then uh, Professor Malik will uh, open up the comments in, in, in the Q&A. The first one is, um, and I don't know if you remember what you said when you said it, uh, or vice versa, but it was the quote where he said that um, what actually happened, what actually happened really matters. So it's important for us to study the details of what, what happened, whether it's the past or the present or and the reason why I bring this up is I think like once we realize from, I don't know, post-colonial, feminist, post-structural approaches that a lot of what we've been taught is what it is, right? Like there is a desire maybe to go to meta-analysis only or think, you know, the frameworks and, but at the same time or alongside of it, it's really important that we sit and do the work of studying what happened or didn't happen. And I think part of what we hear tonight uh, it will also be an invitation in that sense and I also see it as an actual challenge in my uh, own research. Another one was that um, most of the interventions since, and you can remind me of the time frame that you gave us, uh, but a lot of humanitarian or human interventions that have happened, the, the argumentation or legitimation around it uh, have been based on lies. And what, we, what do we do when we take that as, a, as, as, a, as an actual starting point of trying to make sense of, of the global order and uh, recent um, histories. Um, and lastly, I think what is really uh, important, and I think I will try to end with this, is that um, in one of your talks you, you mentioned that questions about humanity or what humanness is, whether we want to define it or not, or just engage it, these questions are also ours. And I'll let you fill in what ours might mean. But we have to separate those questions from the answers that have been given to us so far, right? And I think that's the invitation. So rather than maybe dismiss all the institutions, the legislations that we have, because we understand how imperially they have been deployed in many different ways, there is something else to think about in terms of um, how much space we give in the answers that we can come up with when we try and understand who counts as a human, what counts as humanness, uh, and in obviously the wider context of uh, uh, human rights, that might be a very important question or invitation for us to think about. So I hope that in some way I did some uh, justice to the brilliance that you will be hearing. Uh, I really, really thank you again for taking out the time. We all have very busy schedules uh, to be here tonight, both in person and, and online. And um, I invite you to give uh, your comments. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, thank you um, to all who made it possible for me to be here tonight. And thank you all for taking the time for being here in this audience tonight. Um, I know you are all busy and it's cold out there, so. <laughs> um, the title I gave to this talk tonight is um, No One and Everyone. Um, it's actually not new. No one and everyone is how every single article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights begins. No one and everyone. You can read it, every single one of them. The individual does not appear, persons do not appear, 
communities not appear, it says no one and everyone. And I wanted to share my thought about that today, as we remember the University Declaration of Human Rights, because those two phrases are actually very, very, very capacious. And they were also meant to resolve a lot of problems at the time this document was conceived. There is a reason why the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was not a treaty. It's not a treaty, it is an agreement. The agreement was, after the war, given the circumstances in which we find ourselves in the world, that human lives have to be ennobled in some ways. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the draft of it was not unconnected to other things that were happening. For instance, the setting up of the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, and the debate about the structure of the United Nations system, and et cetera, et cetera. They were not unconnected. And the concerns there were all the same. How did you come to where we were and what to do going forward? Um, there's a, a background to a background. The background to the background is that before the, the Human Rights Declaration, the ICJ was set up and the sources of international law were defined there in a way that a lot of people who came later to this convention found already a bit troubling, though they tried to correct later. And that was the sources of international law were, you know, treaty, we know that, custom, we know that, but there were those two things that said the laws of civilized nations and then the part that says the teaching of the highly qualified professors and judgment by certain courts, which meant that even though Europe had brought us to where we were, they still thought that they mastered international law and what was to follow better than everybody else. The way they tried to correct it is that the ICJ, actually, the International Court of Justice actually recognized that they would have as an institution to represent a lot of multiple legal traditions. So the way we elect judges to the International Court of Justice is to pick take people from multiple legal traditions. That was, in that setting, the only time when they conceded that, in fact, other people have legal traditions and that they are valid, that there is jurisprudence to be gotten from the Muslim world, from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa. So when people were talking about the human, human rights document was drafted, there was a lot of attentiveness to that. If you don't believe me, just go read the legislative history. There's a lot of attention to the fact that there, somebody said the teaching. So obviously, and, and no offense to anybody who went to LSE, of course, smart people come from out of here, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But there are others, the human genius is sort of a bit distributed evenly. So the drafters, they paid attention to a number of things. Um, but Eleanor Roosevelt officiated. And then there was René Cassin, French, who had escaped the concentration camps, so there's a history there. Charles Malik from Lebanon, who's Arab but Christian, there's also some, some things in operation there. And Cruz from Peru. And then, of course, there was the Canadian, the Australian representative, and then China and the Soviet Union had to be represented later. That was 
something already that wasn't quite right because they wanted this drafting to be sort of of civil society and it's not a state thing because one of the people we're trying to constrain by human rights declaration were the very states that inflicted violence on people and etc. But, but obviously the structure of the UN made it that they invited themselves. But the, the main actors actually were René Kassin, Charles Malik, Cruz, and the Canadian representative. Why am I telling you all this? It is because behind those people came with very, very strong ideas of A, what it meant to be human in the modern world, and what it was to, to protect about human faculties and capacities to a noble human existence. They were very clear about it. But those traditions, obviously, in some quarters were never learned because we convinced ourselves that the human rights document was really about individual rights. Of course, we had Magna Carta, the French had the revolution, and et cetera, et cetera. We convinced ourselves, and so we read it as if the thing says individual. It does not. No one and everyone. And so to understand the universal degradation of human rights, you actually have to know who everyone is and who no one is. Otherwise, you can make sense of this thing. Some people, they were obviously distrustful of the state. René Cassin had to be distrustful of the state. The French state delivered Jews in the Veldiv to the Nazis. You, you couldn't be René Cassin and trust the state. Um, but Cruz from Peru believed that the Republic has something to do with how we exist. And so when we are talking about traditions, I'm going to explain later, Cruz was closer to the French than everybody else, the, French, the spirit of the French Revolution. And I want to make a caveat here, right? Peru has a very, very long tradition connection to, to, to law, both international constitutional law. Peru today still stands as the only country that actually tried and sent to prison a former heads of state, Fujimori. So these traditions exist. We are not the best, always the best examples for a lot of things, but I just wanted to just put that caveat in. It is to tell you that people, when people sat there, they were actually thinking about the human in a very interesting way. And the no one and everyone was supposed to allow us to continue thinking about the human and to continue thinking about how, that, and how we can make human rights laws perfect. They were not meant to be to be closed, unclosed. And so um, what happened, obviously, is that in the 1970s, actually after Helsinki, the Helsinki Accords and then the collapse of the Soviet Union, everybody says, in Moin's word, the new utopia, human rights, because the other utopias have failed. Communism failed, third world, whatever failed. So we go back to human rights. It becomes a new religion. That may be true of Eastern Europe because of communism and the nature of that of communism in those. And of course, I'm very, very sympathetic and alert to the group of 77 and all of those group, uh, Helsinki defense groups in Eastern Europe and all that stuff. Of course, for those people, that utopia collapsed completely. But not so third worldism. Not so, actually. That is not a failure. And I'll come to that later. It's not. We want to tell ourselves that that entire stuff fell, but it's not. 
He did not. Nasser disabused everybody of the idea as well as in, uh, encrusted in, in, in John Locke and, and all the rest that our relationship to our environment was not constituted for property. So we can be living in places and what was behind, beneath our feet can, be, can belong to somebody else. And he just said, Suez is mine, it's my environment. Right? So we live in a world where what was Kaiser Canal, which is now Kiel Canal, Kiel Canal, could be German because it's in Germany. But there, Panama, that's ours. Egypt, that's ours. So does the right to self-determination. It was read by Europeans, even until Congo, as the old right of people to dispose of themselves. The language in the Khrushchev Declaration came from Guinea and Ghana. Our new understanding of self-determination in that text comes from the crisis in Congo. You don't look, trust me? Go read Conor Cruz O'Brien. The world is not today because somebody generously sort of liberalized everything else, here, 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 here. It didn't happen that way. It's in the crisis over Namibia that we pose the question as to whether international law, as was, as came out of colonialism by colonial powers, whether they apply today. I invite you to read Japanese dissent in 1966 in the Namibia decision. The idea that international law cannot survive intact. In so all that stuff about the teaching of the learned professors and whatever, we dispense with that during the Namibian crisis. It's the longest standing crisis at the ICJ. So more than 10 years. Just read just Tanaka's dissent. We, our norms today internationally have not come, become what they are because somebody generously said, you know, we used to think about this way, but now we change it. Now we do give you this thing. It didn't quite happen that way. And I'm telling you all this because the norms of international law, the way people have thought about it in that global south, actually matters. That is what escaped Moins and all these people who talk about the new sort of civil, secular religion of human rights, escapes them. So if you are from where I come from, I want to present you another way of looking at human rights and the human in the human rights. It's just an exercise. So we have the French, the American, and the Haitian revolutions. You know they all happened in the span of 20 years, right? One way, if you want to do an exercise, one way to think about the American Revolution is that they drafted the Constitution, you know, blacks appear three-fifths and all that stuff. We can forget that. that. That's an inconvenience. But the first Tenth Amendment were really what gives us what we call individual rights, right? And they are all, in the world again, of somebody from this institution, uh, Isaiah Berlin, negative rights. The state shall not know establishment, it's all in negative, right? What the state cannot do because there's a sphere of sovereignty in the American system. You have the federal government, state, and, and the individual. That is, which is not given to the state and the federal, gov the federal government to the state is devolved to the citizen, right? And so we have individual rights, which is actually, it's one of the most powerful documents, by the way. So this is not to write, simply to tell you, to give you a sense of how these international norms around human rights questions appear before I come back to these people who were designing the document itself in, in, uh, in the US. The French Revolution, as it says in the Declaration of, Universal Declaration of the Right of Man and of the Citizen, gave us citizenship. People who self-govern, who govern themselves, have to have certain capacities 
And therefore, certain faculties, in the exercise of certain faculties, for instance, the will, consent, and et cetera, have to be protected to have good self-government. So yes, it was on behalf of the citizen. That is proper. But here it is. The individual does not exhaust what it means to be human. Meaning that the capacities in which you exist as an individual does not exhaust what it means to be human. The citizen citizenship does not exhaust what it means to be human. Haiti, this is the thing. Haiti was a slave colony. People who were beyond the bounds of all civil and political institution had been held as a property themselves. They to have a document inspired, yes, by the Enlightenment, I concede that. But the diction is not Enlightenment. And the content and substance are not Enlightenment. It's theirs. Because people who had been held by the had been given to other people by the state as, and, and those states that had the revolution, Americans had slavery, the French had slavery, they maintained it, as property decided that some things shall not happen to human beings, whether they live in the social order, whether they are outside of it, whether they are inside of it, or whether they are departing it, when we are born, when we live, and when we die. And the whole language of the Haitian Revolution has to do with putting les anciens libres et les nouveaux libres on the same plane, and then everybody who lived in Haiti, nous sommes tous noirs, nous sommes tous haïtiens, that they are all equal. Because they thought as human beings, there are some things that we actually deserve as human beings, and it was mostly about access to certain resources, the right to shelter, to food, the right against torture, uh, and you can just go down the line. Those are the rights that you need, whether you are outside of the, you are beyond the pale, outside of the state, as you were slaves, as they were slaves, I'm sorry, or whether you are in the state, and etc. So they imagine that to be human, fully human, nobody shall deny you what they want for themselves. And that actually human beings are the only animals, beings, that depends on other people when they are born and when they die. So what we do with the body from birth to death matters. Whether they have access matters. If you go read those documents, the debate, that's what they are saying. Which is why they could not see the difference between a white and a black, and they said we are all Haitian. Ancien libre, nouveau libre, they are all the same. That is not something slaveholding republics were capable of doing. It's the slaves who said that. I'm telling you this story because after the 1970s in Europe, something happened in America and Australia and et cetera, which is that as human rights was being something everybody was claiming on the streets of Africa for sure, and Moen is right, and a lot of people are right about that, everybody was claiming human rights, we assumed that what they wanted was strictly civil and political right. That was through Czechoslovakia, groups G77. Elsewhere, not so, not, not so fast. That's the one thing that happened. We assume that we can reduce human rights to civil and political, and then some people realize that that is not actually a good thing, right? 
there are other rights. And because in the third world, after UNCTAD conferences, after the new international economic order, of course they will fail. But the laws, the sea pass, and etc. People said, well, well, you know, you have rights, and, and in the West, you can only understand, understand this as right to development. So we tried first to make a distinction between human rights and right to development, which is one of the, 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 the divisions that happened. And by the 1990s, we were making hierarchies of human rights. Civil political first, socioeconomic second, cultural rights third. And so people actually, smart people in smart universities were saying we have a hierarchy of rights. As if these rights, um, they all emerge, which is why I was telling about Haiti, the US, France and Haiti at the same time, 20 years span, they all emerge at the same time. It's not simply that all of them, what we now we're calling civil, political, and socioeconomic, and, and, and cultural right, that they all appear at the same time, it's not only that they, they actually did appear almost simultaneously, it is also that, in fact, the only set of rights whose existence do not depend on a socioeconomic or cultural context were those defended by the Haitians. You needed a particular political order, cultural traditions, to have civil political rights, and you needed particular traditions, whatever, to have citizenship rights. That is actually linked to a particular political project. So the kind of human rights that, that were separate of whether we live in, a, in society or whether society has put that aside, whether we are the domestically abused, whether we are the stateless, whether we are whatever, whatever our circumstances, it was actually those fought for by Haiti. So to call those socioeconomic and these ones political civil and to call these ones primary was actually both dubious in terms of intellectual genealogy, but it was also politically convenient. And that's the liberalism question. We wanted to make everything about the individual and the individual in particular capacities, not just individual sui generis, but individual in a particular capacity. Now I come back to the Human Rights Convention. All of these traditions were being carried away here in this forum in San Francisco when people, and in New York and Washington where people were talking about this changing drafts and et cetera, et cetera. All of those were there. Cruz was a, the Peruvian had been military, military judge. And of course, military judge means that he was sensitive to human rights and state has to be held to certain standard and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he also knew he's from Latin America. He knows of the hacienda, the plantation, and the kind of violence that is accrued on the capitalism, the, the plantation economy to individual in labor relations, those kind of abuses. Cruz is the one who insisted that the document be actually a, a, a treaty, and then he, when they said no, it couldn't be, he retreated, he said it has to be ratified at the Economic and Social Council, not the Security Council. Because what people were calling economic and social, he thought was a sort of a funny thing, way to look at it. The violence of the plantation happened in the economic context, which meant that in the economic context, liberalism, capital, investment, labor, just look at all the people in, in Bangladesh and et cetera, et cetera, there's a great deal of violence that comes from those kind of relations. So violence did not just come from our relations with the state, it came with our relations with capital, with industry, and even, yes, in our academic settings. There are a lot of transgressions of what we owe other people or what other people deserve. Cruz was very adamant. 
Charles Malik was one of those who was at the meeting open to the idea that there were actually different traditions and different ways of understanding what human beings need. And since I'm sitting, I'm francophone and of the French, former French empire, I'm from Guinea, sitting from where I am and right, very close to France, I can say, no, and you really don't have to all bathe in one piece or two piece bikinis. Burkini should be allowed if people want to do that. You know, people have different sense of decency. That is okay. It's not anti-Republican. These people are attuned to the fact that we actually have different needs, we have different desires, we have different appetites, and etc. And we shouldn't, and we actually have different circumstances. And so we shouldn't assume that we all need the same thing and one rule should suffit everybody. Obviously, Rene Cassin was very, very sensitive to the question of the violence of the state. Again, Jews had been betrayed. That is always obvious. The delegate of the Soviet Union came there and said, something has to be for people's right. He is the only one, the chair, to whom the chair of the panel, Eleanor Roosevelt, wrote a direct letter to rebuke him and say, no, we are going to reproduce a communist document here. <laughs> right? That's, there's actually a letter to him by Eleanor Roosevelt. But all of these other people were talking about, are we talking about communities? Are we talking about people? Are we talking about individuals? Are we talking about this? Are we talking about Eleanor Roosevelt just called everybody to attention that we can just say no one and everyone will be all happy. No one and everyone. Meaning the document applies to everyone and leaves no one out. The document, that's what it says. Just read it. It doesn't say individual right. No one and everyone. And the idea was that if we agree that if you have rights that apply to all of us, it applies to everyone and no one is left out. What it does is that since it's all of us, we can actually continue talking about this thing, about how we best do this. Because our knowledge is imperfect, our sensibility changes historically, and et cetera, et cetera. So we can debate what this thing is about. And if we say no one is left out, what that compels us to see is to see how violence comes to people and where violence meets people on the plantation, on the factory floor, at works when they, they write or whatever, when people are depriving them of salaries, when the state is shooting at them, right? When communities, are, as the case for instance, when communities are discriminated against them, there are many contexts in which violence actually comes to people. So if we say no one and everyone, we can actually continue Eleanor Roosevelt did not say that. She just wanted to, to, to end a dispute and just said, let's say everyone and all one, but uh, uh, no one and everyone. But I'm actually elaborating on it because the, the spirit was very generous. It was very capacious. It was pointing to a different kind of universalism. It was not, this is how we interpret it in Britain because we have Magna Carta, common law, et cetera, et cetera, or this is how we do it in France. It was that we can all continuously grapple with this thing because the human condition Politics evolves, our economic conditions change, our cultural circumstances change, My, some of us are migration, migrating, some of us are cast out of the state, the state dispossesses some people, and et cetera. We can all continue to think about this thing we call the human. What is the human? Are humans the only people we know? Are those people who are in spaces that are governed by our allies, whose rights have been taken away, are those people human too? Who is the no one and who is the everyone? 
Who is the no one and who is the everyone? Right? So, if violence, if the violence is of capital market relations on the factory floor in Bangladesh, is that less painful to die in a fire because nobody protected you, give, give you windowless buildings than if the Bangladeshi state shoots at you in the streets? Why is, that, why is that different? You may say that the Bangladeshi state is supposed to be you know, protecting the people, etc. Capital did not make that promise, but no, the rule of law applies to everybody. Why isn't that? Why do we assume that market in market relations, in commercial relations, in on the industrial floor, and etc., etc., human right does not emerge? Why do we think the civil political are the only ones? If you live in London, of course you don't know that kind of violence. If you have lived on the haciendas and still live in Chiapas in Mexico, yes. Violence is not just from the state. It comes from a lot of quarters. Unless you want to disqualify them as human or diminish, depreciate their humanity, that is human right. That is why the document actually has multiple components. The last part of the document is actually all about social, what, we call social, what you all call social economic right, which for me actually are primary, the most basic and essential, the one thing nobody can, 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 can do without. All of the other things, even on liberalism, we have different kinds of liberalism. You, you can have, all of the other things can be modified, can be rearticulated, redeployed, and et cetera. The ones we cannot do without are the ones to food, to shelter, to or the ones that the Haitians were fighting about. So, and I wanted to say this because um, I actually think, and this is where I'm going to stop and, and we're going to have questions. We have, we have spent so much time arguing whether you know, this is individual rights and et cetera, et cetera, and the debate is actually sort of at once comical and nonsensical. We are also fighting about whether these are Western norms and these are whatever, but they are not. Haitians were, yes, in the West, but their project was against that, you know, the form of government in the West and et cetera. These were black people. And this is, my conclusion thought actually is this. One of the reasons in the third world from which, or the global south today, from which I come from, is the tendency to say, oh, these are Western things, right? That's from the West. Every single prohibition that may be constitutive of, of that entered either directly or indirectly in this document called the Universal Declaration, many of them came from those spaces first. I ask you a question. Between the slave and the slave master, who would have first said, you shall never beat me again, sir or ma'am? The slave. When Quilombolas outlawed torture in 1609, one of the many hats, it's debatable, but there's enough evidence to show that, one of the many hats that Francis Bacon wore was commissioner of torture. Torture was allowed for sins against the church, about the monarchy, and et cetera, et cetera. Quilombos were outlawing torture. The last person to outlaw in, out, in the French Empire, forced labor, the law is called Loi au Feu Boigny. Before the Durand brothers went to Soferino and saw the suffering and, and had the, the Red Cross, there was a woman in America called Ida B. Wells, fighting to outlaw lynching. Many of these actually came, what, where do you think, who do you, whose body do you think was contested in the public square? Black and brown people and women. Why do you think they never thought about these things? So it's, it's actually almost treachery that somebody in Africa will tell young people, hey, these things are, you know, that, that's really Western things. No, we thought about them before the West. They did not generously just say, we used to hold you as slave, now we respect you, 
thank you very much. No, it didn't happen that way. It didn't. We should just do it. It's not worth. So there's no benefit in saying, we in the West know rule of law and except we are going to tell you what those things are. There's no utility in that because you didn't have them before we did. You wrote them down, yes. As, um, uh, what is his name, Sidney Mintz wrote, uh, Haitians were not, did not have Jeffersons, but what they did was greater than Jefferson could ever imagine. And one of the things he says that in, your, in Western traditions, you all have Spartacus, you saw the movies, you were brave and etc., but they failed. Haiti is the first human entity that was wholly enslaved that actually managed to set itself free and give itself these institutions. How do you imagine that we can go to those people and tell them, you don't know what rule of law is, we are going to give? No, actually they did, right? And this is not actually to just say to shame, so it's not that. It is that if we pay attention to the no one and everyone, we get to meet everyone in their own context, and then we begin to see why everyone asks for human rights in the way that they do. And that will be a better conversation. No one and everyone. And I stop there, I'll take your questions, thanks. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much. I will um, invite uh, Professor Malik to uh, give her reflections. Uh, she joins us from the uh, DePaul University in Chicago. I'm so grateful that you could make it here, be here, take some of the pressure of myself <laughs> to organize a Q&A around this. But I'm also counting on everyone in the room. Start thinking what you might want to engage in terms of comments or questions. Uh, but the floor is yours. OK, we're done at 8, right? Yeah, there, there's so much, obviously. There's so much to, um, to say. Um, let me, I have five points, and I worry that they might be a little bit too academic, but let me try to see if I can move through them a little bit, and I'll, I'll respond to your facial expressions. <laughs> um, uh, because I want to just, I want to open it up to questions. I feel like we can all, um, there's, there's a lot to um, tease out about what um, Professor Groverly has uh, offered us tonight. Um, so, so in some ways, I think the, the, my role is a little bit of a translator, right? And so I want to sort of pull out um, some threads to um, uh, frame, right? Some, some sort of theoretical foundations, right, that, that underpin his arguments and that might impact uh, your questions in some way. But then I also want to kind of um, like turn us a little bit towards um, uh, how I think um, he's doing the work that he's doing and why, what kinds of questions it, it, it opens up for us in terms of thinking about human rights. So first, um, uh, he, the first two are sort of technical, right? So on the one hand, he, he focuses on um, uh, avoiding um, fetishizing and reifying. We talked a little bit about this in the IR um, session yesterday. And he says about, for example, time, right, that um, our future is someone else's past, right? That sort of that we are, um, we have a responsibility to 
uh, those that come after us. And so um, uh, when we think about uh, what we're doing or the kinds of questions that we're asking, um, uh, a relational approach is um, warranted, right? To think about sort of ourselves in the world. Um, in another uh, related example, um, in, in the piece that he's written on, on uh, or that it was an interview actually on reading Kant badly, right? Um, I reframe this a little bit and think about reading Kant imp uh, impiously, right? And, and, and uh, uh, Professor Groveby has said, when, he, when he's asked about this piece, he responds and he says, well, you know, I reserve the right to read Kant badly because uh, I'm, I'm reading Kant for different ends, right? In terms of thinking about um, uh, uh, what is the human, right? Uh, who is the human, right? Uh, who gets to live, who gets to die? Um, but there's something else in that interview, and I encourage you all to read it, that is um, where, when he says, I am not Kantian, yeah? And he takes this as an accusation, right? That he, someone in the audience at, this, at, the, at the interview session, was it an ISA panel or something? Mm -hmm. um, says, uh, uh, you know, well, you're a Kantian, and he says, I am not a Kantian. And so you wonder, like, well, what is, what is at stake in that claim, and why is it so serious? And, and he says, and this is, I think, for me, crucial to um, orienting myself to access, right, what he is trying to convey with the words that he uses, right, which is, is, is in some ways counter to what we normally hear. And he says in, in the piece, right, I use Kant because you speak Kant, and I want to be intelligible to you. I want to make myself understood. Right? So I'm using language that I know that you will understand. If you, for example, would understand Al-Kunti, I would use Al-Kunti. Right? That these are, this, I, what, that what, what is at stake here is the conveyance itself. Right? And so this is um, connected to some of the things that we, we saw today. A few other things I'm, I'm going to just throw out, and maybe you can see if you, if you, if you want to like pull on it further. Um, but I'm not going to explain it in, in great detail, because I want to get to like one particular point and, and end with a question that maybe can open up. Professor Guovary is, 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 is in a war of contested boundaries over disciplines. Right? So this human rights is a perfect example of an interdisciplinary space or you know, where, where or interdisciplinary questions get raised that you can find in many. And um, uh, when he's asking us, for example, to ask the question of, um, he says just a minute ago, uh, what is the human, right? Who is the human? Um, um, these are questions that, that transcend any um, of the, what we consider our contemporary disciplinary boundaries. Um, they are um, history of science questions. They're questions um, that require um, evidence or proof, and he actually distinguishes between the two, right? And then in terms of how he does the work that he does, right, um, uh, um, Olivia has called it uh, uh, forensic, right? And, and it is, but he, and he studies institutions, right? And he studies institutions not like the ones that we would think of that we're talking about judiciary and so on, although also those, but he studies like societal institutions wherever they may be, every society has them. Not every society has had them in the way that we understand them. He has a very important story about Mandela, right, which he did not bring up today, and I was sort of hoping that he would because everything that he's saying is almost dependent on, on, on the claim, right? That Mandela, correct me now if I'm, if I'm wrong, Sipa, right? Or if I, if I um, say this incorrectly. But that um, Mandela says, you know, I have fought against white domination, I have fought against black domination, I have fought against apartheid, right? Um, and I will 
I will fight to the death. Like, I will die for your right to have what I want. Like, that, that he is understanding that, that there is a, a we that is sort of constituted when you think outside of the grain of the uh, boundaries of difference that organize our world. And this is a very important um, point because it takes us to, again, and I'm glad that you said public square because that is my opening to everything that I wanted to like say today. Um, no partial public sympathies, right? What orients the work that he's doing is a position to no public, no partial public sympathies. And this is a very, very, um, uh, I don't even know what the adjective would be. I've run through so many possible adjectives, and I'm just going to go with important, although it's really insufficient at this moment. But um, uh, no partial public sympathies is something that you can see as akin to questions of, of, of solidarity, of universalism, of allyship, everything that we sort of understand as, as ways to respond to the, uh, the, the political moves that create the, um, the problem of human rights, right? Political moves that create the problem of, or that recognize the problem of difference. Political moves that create um, and respond to um, unequal uh, 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 laws and so forth, right? The idea that who, um, some people get to live and some people get to die, right? And, and that, that the, the institutional structures of our society are very consequential. Um, but the, 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 the idea of no partial public sympathies is different than solidarity, right? So if you'll bear with me for just like one more minute, um, uh, uh, solidarities, allyship, are, and universal, they're centered on the problem of difference, right? The one thing that they take for granted is that, is that the chessboard, right, on which politics is being played out, right, everybody agrees that there's difference. The idea of no partial public sympathies takes for granted that there's a public space in which difference is not the center point, it's not the starting point right, of, of political action. So, um, uh, and it, it sort of opens up with the we. And I, I, I think of that as when, when you talk about citizenship or the citizen, right, when Mandela is sort of hailing the citizen, right, the responsibility of the, of the actor who is involved in this kind of politics. And the question that I want to sort of leave you with is, where is the public in no partial public sympathies? Right? So where is the public? I, I have a several versions of this. What is the public square? How are we thinking of publics? Um, and so where is it that we can find a space where we can orient ourselves towards a different starting point than the starting point that we're all highly literate in already? And I'll stop. Um, thank you. Actually, she, she went, um, uh, she knew, knew something more in excess of what I said tonight because I'm working on a, on a big manuscript and she's taking some of it. And, and I think that Professor Malik is right that uh, the title of the manuscript actually is no, public, no Partial Public Sympathies. But the question of public is actually complicated. But I can say that the public will always constitute itself. Like, I take this forum of these guys sitting there as a kind of public square. 
the British Brown Table, Round Table, 1916, Lloyd George and all of these guys, the Americans, and extra, I take that as a, you know, one more. But th that's, that's the thing, that the public square is not actually a physical thing. It is where we invite ourselves to think about questions that pertain to everybody. And we do it in academic rooms, like here, this is a public. Artists do it together when they have the exhibits and children. But that's the public. And, and, and what is dangerous in all our publics, when we gather to think about the world, it is that, that impartiality to the public, in this public square, actually, is, um, <coughs> that is, now that, that's my Haitian Kilombola traditions coming in now. And, and this is why I, I like no one and everyone, and I think that that's the same tradition, no one and everyone. It is that we cannot admit that our alliances, people, states, say, say states for instance, our, this, when states make alliances, that the ones who are closer to us get indulgences, meaning that they can do whatever they want to do, we we'll always find excuses for them, so they get a pass. Right? The last time the Catholics tried that, there was a man called Martin Luther rose up and said, no more indulgences. We can't, but that's the thing. Even in an institution like the church, you cannot give some people a pass. Either we have rules or we don't. You cannot give anybody a pass. You cannot have indulgences. What also you cannot have is the requirement in the Latin America, since I was talking about haciendas and etc., that people cannot just say, my way of life, for my way of life, to protect my way of life, I will suspend this. <clears throat> my desires, my need. The whole thing about defending and protecting the public square is that we get to stay in our with our own private sentiment, our appetites, our desires. They are all legitimate. Nobody says that those, somebody will take that from you, which is what I have with, about cultural rights. People should be left alone to do. As long as in the public square there's no partiality, we're actually safe. We have to give ourselves, right? You cannot have a constitution where somebody is 350 of a person. You can't. You cannot have, and, and the jury system in America is actually one of the, the, the interesting part because it's also part of the, this book project, right? In America, they are so proud of we have a jury system. It's a jury of your peers. And you, and you tell them, do you know that when these young white and black liberals at Northwestern University that decided to do the Innocence Project, they discovered that upward to 65% of people who were on death row were black, number one, and they had been there unjustly. Right? The idea of a jury of your peer made sense when it was first imagined because, of course, it, it took justice away from the, for, from the nobles and the court and gave it to the citizens in the, under the republic. Right? The king or the queen is no longer going to send you to jail, and your peers will decide what that. But in the American South, a white jury is really your peer. You are allowing for so many sentiments that have nothing to do with the public to be in there. And we shouldn't assume that, because it's not, if this jury system was so perfect, how would you have that result? It's not 15%, it's 65%. So we actually really have to think very seriously about the public, where our interests sort of brings us, and where our sentiment and values bring us, and, our, and, and think about norms in those settings. Uh, this is not a finished project, and this is the only place where I agree with Obama, you know, near perfect union is perfect to et etc. We have to work on this, but the only way we, we can do that actually is to take these things seriously, which is why I like the, the really I like the formulation. It's, it's almost fortuitous that this 
right? But this is the thing. No one and everyone actually was not the first time Eleanor Roosevelt said that in any setting. Eleanor Roosevelt actually knew that there was an American conceit around human rights, which is that we have civil rights and other people need human rights. Or as a Margaret Mimi Keck says it, uh, human right is what you have fought the mieux. We have mieux and they have fought. <laughs> if you don't speak French, you will miss it. <laughs> you will miss the joke, right? Human rights is what you have fought the mieux, right? But Eleanor Roosevelt, in, 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 in 1936 or 39, I forgot now, maybe the numbers are reversed here, there's a woman, Mary Anderson, who is an American singer, who wanted to raise money for Howard University and goes to the, yes, Daughters of the American Revolution. And she goes to the Daughters of the American Revolution and says, we want to have this so we can raise money to educate these black people. In those days, historical black colleges, you know, black, black people went to these colleges because they couldn't go to white schools and et cetera. The Daughters of the American Revolution refused to give them permission to have a public spectacle to raise money for Howard University. So Eleanor Roosevelt said, my husband is going to host it for you. So they had the event at the White House, right? Because she said, if we cannot do, my husband as president cannot tell, force any private association to hold this event, but he's the president of America, so he gets to hold it. So she went to her husband and she said, I think you are going to hold this. By the way, it was not permission. <laughs> it was actually, it was not permission she was asking. You are going to have this event. And he did, right? Which means that in the public square, we can do a lot of things that we cannot do in the private sphere. The daughters of the American Revolution, I don't even know why they call it that, but the daughters of the American Revolution could not allow this event, but the public square had to admit everybody, so her husband has to have this. Right? Those, it's, it's both at once generous, but it's, it's, a, it's leading us toward sort of trying to reimagine ourselves and our politics and how we relate to one another to not admit partial sympathies in the public square, to hold everybody the same. And that's, for me, that's why I actually like, I, I, the, first, the first time I realized that actually this charter says no one and everyone I just said, it must have been drafted in Haiti. No, it was Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> no, right, it was Eleanor Roosevelt. Too bad. <laughs> Any questions? Sorry. Thank you so much. So I will try to take three questions. Uh, please don't talk before the steward comes to you. I see a question on the side, in the middle, and in the back, and then we'll do a second round uh, after that. Hi, my name is Mariam, and I'm from Egypt. Thank you very much for your uh, talk today. Um, so I read your article on mind, body, gut that mm -hmm. um, reminds us that we should um, take discourse in its context. So for example, while, while the US was um, pushing out the discourse of human rights and freedom and so on, it was also engaged in slavery, and so this points to its disingenuous uh, <coughs> origins of that discourse. My question is, is on the ap applicability of this same discourse within contexts um, to the third world and um, particularly to Nasser and other, other leaders and post-colonial hegemons that at the same time were um, uh, leaders of post-coloniality and uh, re reclaiming the land and reclaiming the economy and supporting the people um, were also engaged in state repression and the outlaw of political opposition and um, practices that um, recreated uh, coloniality itself. What meaning do we derive from, from um, this gap in between a, a discourse of liberation from the colonial oppressor at, at the same time that um, oppression of newly freed peoples is taking place by that same discourse creator? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to take a yeah, yeah. So Thank you. Mm -hmm. one on the side and one in the middle. In the next round, I'll come to the others. Um, hello. Thank you very much for a very stimulating talk. My name is Aicha Chubukchu. I'm part of LSE Human Rights here. 
Um, my question is a question of clarification. Are you arguing that no one and everyone, that very formulation, is a new formulation of universality uh, when it comes to the question of the human? Is that what you're arguing? If it's not the individual uh, that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is talking about, uh, because I noticed th throughout your talk there were a lot of negations. It's not about the individualist. Then what, what or people is or communities, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, um, then what is it about in your interpretation? Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, um, thank you for your lecture. It's um, inspiring. I have a, a practical the question. As you may have known, why paper the <laughs> protest, I mean, taken place in the university in China and also outside China? Why what, 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 please? Um, why paper the protest? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the China, China government has constantly warned their students not to make any connection with the foreign reactionary forces, um, which claim by the China government interfere their domestic the politics. So claiming so is to put a stop for international human rights the campaigner mm -hmm. to side with Chinese student the protest. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how will you react to this claim? Mm -hmm. Thank and you. We'll take the brief uh, yeah. questions. And Thank you, and, and I'm just going to answer in the order that was given. Um, um, in a different paper from the body <laughs> that essay, I actually wrote something about the failed state. And the problem in Africa, obviously, is that, um, you know, we talk about Africa as if it was one, but, you know, the people who are in jail, sitting in jail, and the people who are governing are both Africans. So we can actually get to talk about the politics. And I don't, I don't think that what the people who send those other people to jail are the ones who speak for Africa, number one. Number two, the claims that they make actually are hollow. Uh, you cannot say, and this is, this is the public question. If you say we live in a republic, republic means actually government of the consent. If you want to have a monarchy, have it. But even monarchies are actually, <laughs> you know, we have constitutional monarchies and, and et cetera. I think we actually have to fight. It's a battle of ideas. It's, that's what the document was. It was actually to allow people to have those battle of ideas. But, and, and, and this actually joins tangentially the question there about the individual. <coughs> like, human beings, because it's about human rights, human beings are compelled by circumstance, the nature of society, the data of the economy, and et cetera, to surrender part of their powers to those entities, but they never surrendered them completely. And if you think of human rights and the state and state institutions, what you have is that we transfer authority, certain, certain capacities, certain, some of our capacities, for instance, we cannot protect ourselves individually, otherwise we have chaos, everybody has guns, we see that in America, and then we shoot one another, or we actually have a police force and et cetera. But when you give power, you give people immunities only in the exercise of that power, right? But if the obligations are not given, the immunities don't hold anymore. Actually, that's how constitutionalism emerges. It emerges as 
obligations, immunities to fulfill certain obligations, and if the obligation is not fulfilled, then immunity is not. So you cannot shoot people and say you are protecting them. It's absolutely absurd. And I think that one of the things we have done lately, sadly, is that we have talked so much about civil society that we have forgotten to actually recenter the state and to focus about why do we have a state, what do states do, and why nobody should ever pretend that human beings will give up all, totally all of their powers to one person. So I do not buy that thing. I don't, I don't, I was joking about America, right? America today has more black youth in jail per capita than South Africa did under apartheid, and that was a crime against humanity. No, state fell in different capacities. America, in relation to black people, has failed the social contract. I was in Egypt, in Guinea, and et cetera. Of course they have failed. We don't, no, that is not even a question. It's not a doubt. It's, it's an empirical question. So the question of human rights, what people need, what people's relations are to the state, is an empirical question. You cannot paper over that and say, no, we are Arabs or we are Africans, uh, Ubuntu or whatever the is. <laughs> no, that is not actually, because we have a modern state system, it's like a car. It functions in certain ways. If you put brakes on it, it's going to hit a tree or somebody else, right? If you want a modern state, but if you don't want to be, you don't want to be head of state, that's actually what I said in, in Guinea once. And I said, if these guys don't want to be heads of state, they should go home and be patriarch. But we don't have kings anymore, at least not in Guinea. And in Egypt, I, I, remember, I, I know that Farouk moved away from the scene a long time ago, right? And, but we have to actually have that fight. And, and so I'm not considering that, that these people are doing stuff, it's our culture and traditions. No, 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 that, 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 that is not the case, and, and I would not defend that. Um, the second question was about, yeah, it was about the individual, and when I say it's not the individual, no. I just want to, maybe to clarify, since you said it's a clarification, I said, as human beings, sometimes we function as individuals. We claim property, we marry whoever we want, we do whatever. That is in the private sphere. The constitutional norms allow us to do that. We, sometimes we are not acting as individuals, we are acting as citizens. We make demands on, on the state. But sometimes we just want to sort of reclaim the basic right to existence. And so to reduce everything to individual right is actually to reduce human existence to those fac faculties and capacity attached to the individual, which is not the only time, it's not the only way we function. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying there is a danger to just say it's all about individual right. <coughs> right? I think we should really say human right. The individual is human in certain capacities. The citizen is human in certain capacities. The homeless is a human in certain capacities. Right? The disenfranchised, the domestically abused, they are human in their own capacities. And, and it, you can't just say individual, and individual doesn't, right? It's not, it's not always about broke, I'm breaking a contract, or you are transgressing my property, or you are whatever, right? So the language of the human, that is actually what is involved in Everyone has the right to, and no one is excluded from. So, so if somebody in Egypt want to call whatever those capacities are people, let them call people's right. We are people. If they want to call it community, let's say, okay, that's what the community affords them. But we don't have to engage. That's not the debate we should be having with them. As long as the people who live in those, right, in those capacities, in those needs, that their needs are met, we don't have to. That's what I'm saying, that some of the debate actually has been totally useless, a waste of time. Because we don't have to have that. It simply is, do you have something, call it what you want, right? All of the rest, call it what you want. 
But do people universally in that public square, whether you call it the state of Egypt or you call it my neighborhood in, in, in Baltimore, is there somebody who's excluded from that compact? That is actually, for me, that, that's what the stakes are. It's not how we call it, right? Um, and I had this debate in South Africa with regard to, to, to gay rights in particular, right? Somebody tells me, first of all, Africans, I said, nonsense. We actually do have that. Historically, we have managed that differently. That's a long story. So it's not even, we don't not, not, not go there. But I, I was telling, trying to convince that, that, that fighting this in Africa in terms of writing the same the way that you see in London hurts me as an individual, though I have no problem with gay rights. Right? Because the way rights are articulated in London and Paris and Washington is measured in terms of something you call right, and it comes whether you like it with certain uh, empirical markers. I am from West Africa. I actually kiss men on the lip. It has nothing to do with gay. We don't say, when you have a bed, we don't say uh, 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 single, double, queen, king, and etc. We say in plus, deux plus, trois plus, quatre plus. Because if your friends end up at your house, and we, we are from the rainforest, we are in the rainforest, it rains, three of them are going to sleep in the bed with you. Nobody cares what their sexuality is. But if you start coming gay right this, this, this now I cannot hold hand because the state identifies gays as people who hold hand. We used to do that, hold hand, kiss, and etc. So we have to be careful about how we, again, we, these languages actually do something to our relations and then to our capacity to protect ourselves. They are not neutral. But I really, really am a guy and I'm heterosexual, 1,000%. I still want to hug my friends five minutes asking them how they are, kissing them on the lips. Yes, I do in Guinea. I want to do that. Nobody should call that gay. If you start codifying that, I'm, I'm screwed. And I don't want to lose my ability to touch men and to, to have my, my, my trois plus cat plus to sleep together. <laughs> it does, it's not all about sex, right? So that's all I'm saying, that, that we have, that's, right? The, because these public are very different, right? We have to be able to find different ways to talk about those spaces. Transmission to the notion of individual has been an interpretation of the document yeah. itself, but not not represented in, in the document. document itself. Yeah. Now the question of universalism. Yes. Yes. I'm actually talking about different form of universalism. That's what she cited. No partial public sympathies. We we have to find a way to agree on what works for all of us, without it being. This is what comes from Magna Carta, or this is what works in uh, Paris. You know, Parisians actually, I'm, I'm, again, I'm Francophone, uh, when they tell you, you know, we don't have race because we don't have race to appear on identity, everything is universal, bonk. We just have to be able to, <laughs> right? And, and, and that is, so it's not, it's not just Guinea, it is in France, it's here, it's, it's everywhere. We, we, that the public, once, once you find black people, well, actually, I have to say, I'm not a conservative, but I'm, I was so happy to see Sunak, yeah, Prime Minister of the UK. I just said yes. Really? <coughs> yes. Really? Hmm? No. no, 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 no. It's the same reason I said yes to Obama. It, it is that we have to recognize ourselves in wherever we are as being citizens. 
and in the same square, deliberating together, and et cetera, et cetera. Because people have been excluded by reason, by race, by gender, by occupation. All of those have been things that divide us, and, and whether we are in Africa or here, it, it's actually we have to take this thing. If we are together, I think the last frontier is actually going to give the right of the right to vote to residents and not just citizens. You know, there's this absurdity. There was a case in the New York Times once somebody who lives in Mexico for 25 years is voting for the mayor of DC, but the Mexican fellow who is in DC for 15 years will be affected by this woman's policy. She doesn't be a woman, can't vote for her. Right? So, you know, we have, we really, there's a lot of thinking through our own institutions as we go, which is why I said that I like no one and everyone because we, we, it gives us the capacity to reimagine the public square, to imagine ourselves, our societies, as historically where we are, and et cetera, et cetera. There, there is something to that. And, 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 and so, because I don't believe in the race and the gender and this, and when it comes to the human question, it's not actually that significant. Part of the colonial project, really quickly, part of the colonial project was to actually delineate bodies in these, the particular way that we understand them now. And we take them for granted as sort of natural categories, right? That yeah. that we can point to women and understand what that means. I mean, I know these things are being um, challenged at the moment, um, but that we can look at people and see race or histories or or uh, uh, geographical or territorial um, uh, lineages, right? These these are the things that matter, and we we see them on the census, you know, right? Irish were were worked very hard to get on the British census, for example, um, but but. There, there has to be a way to think outside of these categories if we're to try to sort of move away from the, the colonial apparatus that, that has, has, has think about like what would be the political move. And, and, and one way I think what, what, what we hear is that um, to, to, complete, to move away from these categories and to start from a different point, which is that um, um, here we are, right? in a sort of uh, a, a public space, whatever, whatever that is, I'm still, um, we're still thinking about what that could be, but that um, no partial public sympathies, right? Sympathies for everyone. It's not that we um, have sympathies for um, uh, uh, South Africans and not Palestinians, or um, you know, whatever way that we wanna think about this, but no partial public sympathies, right? That, like, that, that everyone must be cared for by the societies in which we live, period. Right? Categories remain associated colonialism might not necessarily need to be front loaded in our politics. I'm going to be the colonizer and talk about time, which I hate. <laughs> I, um, so we, we are over time, time, but I, I don't know if you, uh, if you wanted to respond to the question uh, of China. And then I, I, what I traveled do, here, I'll talk, but yeah. if people feel committed to go, that's fine too. Exactly. But, yeah. but I, what I also will do while, while you're thinking the response to the last uh, intervention is I will collect as a last round the questions that are there. And I know there were some in the room, but also online. We might not have time to respond to them, but at least we have on record what people were asking. And then maybe we find other ways to. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, if the, the last intervention you heard, if you want to say something to that. Uh, the question from a colleague from China. Oh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, you, start, you talk about time and I panic. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, it's similar to what I was saying earlier in the context of Egypt. Um, one of the, um, since this passing out about 
hierarchies of rights in the 1990s, one response from it was Lee Kuan Yew, Asian values, right? And then obviously that was uh, very convenient for people in the communist bloc formerly, or still, as in China, saying that economic rights is, right, prioritize economic rights. But people do not live on bread alone. And clearly, this is where human rights actually gives people the right to pro protest. Because the, if people or individuals or whatever you want to call them on the factory floor, if workers say, you know, this is not working, it's not working. If citizens say this is not working, it's not working. And, and, and what the human rights language gives us to us is not to be arbiters of all of those, but is to recognize that people who say there's a problem, to recognize how they articulate that problem, and maybe, you were talking about solidarity, to hear them that way, right? So in, in China, yes, the Uyghurs, I mean, you know, Tibet. Uh, but you know, I can't talk about Tibet in America. I refuse to, not because I'm not in sympathy with Tibet, but because this country here gave America a place called Chagos Island. And they rounded everybody off and kicked them off the island in 1961 and created a military base called Diego Garcia. And then they'd go around telling people, you know, China cannot be South China Sea because whatever. No, come on. This is, so that's actually one of the problems politically in the world today is that we, we, we act as if, right? And so, and I'm coming now directly in that, right? So when I say somebody tell me what, what China is doing, I say, I'm not going to talk about that because I still have a problem you haven't answered, right? So. Around Ukraine, people is, everybody is complaining about Africa. Right? Why Africa or whatever? You know what happened last year? Chagos Island was finally, Mauritius was finally told, told you can have Chagos Island back. And the British said, no, we are going to make it an environmental, whatever. We are not going to give back. Right? <coughs> last year, black soldiers who fought for France were finally compensated fully on part of the French, Charon. Right? Last year, it was discovered that the French exposed black people in the south of France and let them be slaughtered by the Germans to protect themselves. So you may think that all of these things we did in the past, you know, come on, you can't just be bitter about colonialism. No, it's actually really still happening. So you want to tell me, the Russians, I don't care for, I, I'll say this, I'm Catholic and I'm going to cross myself when I say it, if somebody were to knock put on off today, I, 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 I will not do it, but I don't think that, I, I'll pretend that I didn't see it. On the record. <laughs> <laughs> on the record, right? But you can't be going to Africa, you know what Putin is doing is not, you know, whatever, occupying. Uh, did you say occupying a country is not okay? <laughs> right? Uh, destroying cities, did you say, have you looked at Afghanistan lately? What are you telling people? But that's the thing. We actually have to allow, we, we at least at minimum, and, and this is actually something I believe pragmatically, we cannot solve all problems. But if we don't face problems, we cannot solve them. You can only solve the problems that you face. We at least at minimum have to consider that all of these things, this is Palestine 70 years, I mean, these refugees. We have to, and then we can say, what this guy did was, was brazen and you know, it's, He's, um, you know, the guy who gave me my haircut in, in, the, in the black neighborhood in Washington, he said, <laughs> that guy, he's a gangster, <laughs> right? The gangster, you don't play by his rules, he takes your brains out. 
he is a gangster. But you, you don't, can't go to Africa and just tell them, you know, occupation is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And they are telling, you know, Mauritius is an African country, by the way, uh, do you know? Anyway, so, but it's the same thing with the Chinese. The Chinese also go to Africa and say, um, you know, we are better than the West, and et cetera, et cetera. But somebody in, in Zambia ran an entire campaign against the Chinese and came in third in the presidential elections. So to my ear as an African, both as an African and to my sensibilities, I don't buy all these things. The Chinese are perfect. They are, you know, this is, they are being subverted by the West and they have to defend themselves. I don't, I don't buy that a minute. It's not even, right? But we just have to be, and I think that the question of, of human rights is that we cannot parcel it out and feel comfortable with the injustices where we are and always be pointing the finger at others. And, and that is what, right? The Chinese question in Africa is actually that. So Hillary Clinton goes to, China, to Africa and says, the Chinese are the new colonial powers. She said that in Nigeria. Two weeks later, on the same spot, the Vice Minister of Commerce in China comes there and said, when we were poor, we helped you out. Why will you turn your backs on us now that we have money? You know what she was saying? Under Mao, every liberation movement had help from China. The US universally opposed every single one of them, from Algeria to South Africa. That is true. But they want to convince us that it's the same China. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a different kind of China. So anyway, but I'm, I'm saying all of these things that, that this kind of deliberation happened, but it's not always accusation and et cetera. It, 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 but we have to actually confront this. China cannot tell its citizens, you know, there are basic things that human beings want, and we don't, we don't surround them to the state because we live in the state. Great. I'm looking at the organizers. So I want two hands and one of the online. We collect the questions. If you have final thought that is in one sentence on that, you can, you can respond to that. But yeah. otherwise, I, I just like to have the question even on, on the record. Yeah. So gentlemen here in the front, thank you. Um, thank you for your talk. Uh, I must contest your claim about uh, René Cassin, because according to John Humphrey, the main authors were Charles Malik and Dr. Chen. Now, I'd like you to comment on the following. René Cassin was on the Conseil d'Etat in 1961 in mm -hmm. France when hundreds of Algerians were killed yes. by Maurice Papon, yes. who, who was an ex-Vichy yes. commander, uh, uh, who, was never, who was never brought to justice. But René Cassin refused to condemn that. He also refused to condemn the expropriation of Palestinian land by Zionist settlers. Uh, on, uh, but he also got the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, uh, what does it say for the legitimacy of human rights declaration when René Cassin did that? And also, uh, later on, Charles Malik became a fascist. Yeah. Would you like to comment on that? <laughs> yes, I'll comment on that. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, actually. <laughs> Thank you. No no, 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 but it's a very interesting question. Thank you. Um, Thank and you. Yeah. questions from online that we might have, again, for the records. One back there, Okay, one back there, online, uh, and then a closing, very brief statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, hi, uh, my name is Pierina. I'm from the Human Rights and Politics uh, Master's Degree. I'm from Venezuela, so Global South, yay. Um, I'm gonna make it really quick. Um, speaking about, uh, we cannot potentially in the long, the short term solve these problems, but we can face it. But what happens when this public square is closed or censored, and Thank people you. start thinking that you know what, we don't even want to face it anymore because they're foreign, human rights are foreign to us, not because somebody else drafted them, but because they seem like uh, utopia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. No, good question. Good question, thank you.
Um, and a question from online um, in relation to Professor Malik's invitation to think about time. Um, and this is from Joe Bluen, who's a PhD candidate in IR. Um, they wondered how we might think about the almost contemporaneous emergence of the Declaration of Human Rights, the establishment of apartheid in South Africa and the Nakba, and the establishment of a settler colony in Palestine, and what this might tell us about the human and everyone and no one, as well as the relationship between publics, Eurocentrism and human rights. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I, I gave I'll make you it an, an impossible task. No, no, it's, it's not going to be an answer. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one. Thank you all. And, and the fellow in line, or is, I don't know if it's Kelly, a... you, know, you know, Joe. Oh, Joe. Okay, yeah. okay, 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 okay. Okay. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I want to answer. You see, what I was saying was that at some point, you know, in this public square, people were deliberating and that the experiences and the perception of the world as it was emerging came true. Yes, even fascists in the third world, as in Brazil, Estado Novo is what gave Brazil all its industry, the airplanes we fly today from Brazil. Even fascists in the third world were nationalists first at some level, right? So I am, I am not saying, I'm not affirming of the politics. You know, when I, when I, I, I teach, in Africa constitutionalism, I point to an irony. The American constitution was written on behalf of slave owners and black people have been wanting to be included in it since. The Soviet Union gave a constitution, itself a constitution on behalf of workers and workers said, no, we don't want it, uh, right? And, and so it's not the politics themselves, we are, we, nobody's is, uh, um, nobody is, it becomes a cent because at some point they said something that was relevant to the, to the context. So I'm not saying that, but what I want to say, obviously, this is why I, this is why she was talking about the title of the book that I'm writing. That's the actual title, No Partial Public Sympathies, is that these people thought that if things come to them and then other people don't need it. And René Cassin, absolutely, right? So I do not say that he was, um, that, what he said, what comes in the document later means that he was above and that he actually believed it, right? I am from Guinea. Uh, people who had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the citizen colonized Guinea, Algeria, and all the rest. So no, no, no. Um, what I'm saying is that, however, and this is the important part, what I'm saying is that, that it was not their idea alone in the first place, that they captured the spirit of certain ideas at a particular moment, but the genealogy and traditions of those ideas go multiple directions. And so I'm using this moment to talk about the Haitians, the Americans, and et cetera, but by using Cruz, I'm actually, Cruz actually is the one who wrote the first draft. That is actually a fact. Uh, but he's a family of the Hacienda and the violence of the plantation, and et cetera. So all I'm saying is that we open these things up, but I am not saying that they were consistent God knows that I would never say that, but, or heroes, I am not, I don't do that either, right? So I want to respond in th that way. Um, it's the same thing in Venezuela. We have to be able in our accounting of what the Republic is to say, if you shut down the public square, you don't have a Republic anymore. What's the Republic? So we can't, that is not, and I, I think I agree with you, right? And it's, it's something totally different. We have to call it what it is. And, and so, so we agree there. Uh, it's the same thing, uh, apartheid. And that's, um, um, 
right? This was known, done on behalf of certain people. White people in South Africa lived the socialism for whites <laughs> because it was a state protected set of rights. Mm. And that was no longer public because as soon as you start dividing the whites, the black, the this, the that, you are no longer in the Republic. And we, we should not even indulge ourselves calling that. But again, uh, here in Britain, as in America, we used to call South Africa a democracy. On the apartheid in 1960s, just read uh, Samuel Huntington, right? These are democracies, imperfect as they may be, right? And, and today people say the same thing, you know, uh, uh, um, about uh, multiple places, Venezuela being one of them, Nicaragua is Nicaragua democracy. Uh, uh, but you can ask the same question about Israel, you can ask the same question about the number of countries in Africa, well, most countries in Africa, actually, um, right? So we don't have to indulge that because that no longer fits the model of the Republic. And we, we have to be clear about that, right? So, so I agree with you, um, but, but I also, and, and so this is why I said that somebody asked me if there was a model of universalism and I said, yes, we live in a time when we can all agree. We, and and the, the reason there's an agreement is that everybody, even in defending their own position, come back to this thing. There are things we owe to our citizen. By the time you go, to giving everything that they owe to the citizen and the citizen response to it, you begin to see that in the world today, in our time, we recognize certain things intuitively. That the marketplace is violent, that it is. That state relation to the citizens is inherently violent. It's inherent, not always effectively, but inherently, and that that violence can come up at any time. It also, to agree that communities are not safer for everybody. That's the fascism question. It excludes the Jews in France. Uh, my father never allows me to chair Madrid because that was the Frankistas. That was <laughs> Franco's team. So Real Madrid, if, whether, no matter who plays on them, I cannot say, yeah. Morocco uh, won today. So. Uh, okay, yeah, Morocco <laughs> won today, so we can say that. But, but so, so, and I really want to say that this is not, and I think that uh, Professor Malik said that earlier, I am not into building sense. I don't know that we do sense. Um, I just know that the public square setups are vessels for us to recollect, to see our trajectory and et cetera. And those people can be very imperfect and some of them can be criminal. I mean, Jefferson said all men were born equal, children who were slaves. He kept his children in slavery. But that statement is potent. Black Americans who were slaves still want to be part of that constitutional order because you know why? Because that just spoke on behalf of man and universality. And they want to be part of that, right? Anyway, I'll stop there and I, 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 I it's a bit long. I was, I was allowed to go five minutes over time. We did 20, so, so I have the difficult task to add in here. I really want to thank all of you for being here, for your engagement. Uh, look back on the talk later on on YouTube or any channel that, that you favor. Thanks to both the interlocutors. Don't go too far. There's supposed to be a reception outside. But thanks again to everyone involved. Thank you. And thank you very much, truly. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.